Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local listening area. Today's show features Dr. Chris Seaman in part of his presentation, The Beginning of the Good News, a study on the Gospel of Mark, part of the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy. Today's show is titled, The Hour, Part 2, recorded in May 2013. And now, Dr. Chris Seaman. Okay, well, what do we do with this chapter? Again, uh, you know, it's likely that we are probably not waiting for the world to end, okay? We're not waiting probably for God's kingdom to arrive tomorrow, but we don't know, right? So we need to take home this message of staying awake. But how do we fit this this almost an interruption in the flow of the story, right? We know that, that what happened in the temple sets the temple leaders against him. They want to kill him, but now we get this chapter-long interruption. Why does Mark throw this in here? Did he just need filler? No, he has a reason. And the reason, which I think I mentioned last time, is this metaphorical chronology. It could happen at evening or at midnight or at cockscrow or at dawn. These are the four times that Mark hangs the next chapter upon. These are the four moments where Mark highlights the beginning of Jesus' passion. The hour of the temple's destruction and of the kingdom of God's coming in power, that hour suddenly is associated, is intertwined with the hour of Jesus' handing over, his being handed over to his passion. And so that's where we enter into chapter 14. Now, it's also kind of interesting that the very first words that come out of Mark's mouth after chapter 13 is, it was the Passover. It was the Feast of Passover. The Feast of Passover was on its way. Now, this is the first time that Mark in the entire gospel, has given us any chronological indicator of when anything is happening. We had the, we had the green grass, right, in Galilee, right? They were eating on the green grass, the, the, the loaves and all that, so we know it was springtime. But Mark has never given us a date or a year or anything like that. This is the first date that intrudes upon the story. In other words, we're, we're moving now from this notion of a, of a murky hour, to a very specific hour, the hour of the Passover. So now we are entering into sacred time, the time of the Exodus. So let's think for a moment about the Exodus. What happens? Um, let's let's try to put a, to together a, a, a sort of a rudimentary chronology of the highlights of the Exodus story. What happens between Israel being in Egypt and Israel being in the Promised Land? What are the main sort of events, would you say, mark that whatever happens in between, right? In the, at the end of Genesis, uh, the book of Genesis, they're in Egypt, Israel's in Egypt, and how do they get from Egypt to the homeland? What's the, fir- what's the first thing that they do uh, when they start their journey? Well, even before the crossing of the Red Sea, they start with a meal, right? They start with the Passover. So let's say Passover is the beginning of the Exodus. Then we cross the Red Sea, Right? And what's the next stop after the Red Sea, the, the next big stop? It's Mount Sinai, right? So they go from Passover to a mountain where they, re- where they enter into covenant, where they receive the Torah and so forth. And what happens after the mountain? They don't just get to the promised land. They have to do some wandering somewhere. 
Where did they wander? The desert, the wilderness. So we go Passover, mountain, wilderness. And where, where do they end? What, where does the Exodus end? A very specific topographical place. It, well, it ends in Canaan, but when they're in Canaan, the Exodus is always, what do they have to cross to get to Canaan? The River Jordan. So let's imagine this. This is the Exodus. Passover, mountain, wilderness, Jordan. Does anyone watch Dora the Explorer? If you have kids, they always have the map that shows you the four different things. It's like, it's like Dora the Explorer. There are four things in the Exodus. Passover, mountain, wilderness, um, Jordan. Now, let's think about Mark's gospel. Where does Mark's gospel begin? Jordan. And as he's doing all of his stuff in Galilee and feeds them, where does he feed them? Not on a mountain. He feeds the masses in a, his disciples say it both times, a wilderness. Jordan, wilderness, and then he takes his disciples to a mountain. And where does the story end? At Passover. Isn't that cool? Mark is an exodus in reverse. We've seen the Exodus. Now Mark, Mark's gospel tells the Exodus in reverse, you know, broadly speaking. Why? What is the significance of telling the Exodus in reverse? It's not that he's saying, you know, we're going to undo all this. He's not undoing the Exodus because the Exodus is the kingdom of God, right? When God draws them out of Egypt, that is God's sovereignty made manifest for the creation of his people and the salvation of everyone, right? So he's not undoing that. He's saying, what I'm doing is the kingdom of God. It, it, it is the, the restoring, the fulfillment, whatever you want to call it, of the kingdom. Recreation. Yeah, all that language. So the reversal of the Exodus is not to end in sort of undoing it. It's not going back to Egypt. But what does the kingdom of God look like in the Exodus? It looks like God defeating the enemy king. It looks like God defeating the empire. Militarily, right? God is the warrior in chapter 15 of Exodus. He's the warrior. Yahweh is a warrior who throws the, the chariots into the sea, devastates the enemy army, right? Uh, he leads them through the wilderness with his messenger in front of the people to guard them on the way to fight for them. Exodus is warfare. It's victorious warfare. That's the good news. And that's what Jesus has been proclaiming from day one. But we know, even if we didn't know the story, we know from having read the journey part, to Jerusalem, that it's going to end seemingly as the opposite of that. It's going to end not in victory, at least initially, but in defeat. I'm going to Jerusalem to die. I'm not going to defeat the empire. I'm not going to restore the kingdom in the way that James and John think I'm going to, or that Peter thinks I'm going to. So this reverse exodus is an ironic exodus, I would put it. The reason why things are told in reverse is because this is an ironic event. What what Mark asserts is good news, the whole story, looks to all intents and purposes as bad news. The Messiah who entered Jerusalem victoriously is captured by his enemies, is defeated by his enemies, is killed by his enemies. Now, what makes it good news, of course, is that God is going to reverse that defeat, right, in the resurrection. And even before that defeat, the defeat itself is bound up with Jesus' claim that his death is salvific. His death 
is life for others, right? That's where the Passover comes in, right? The Passover is not just um, the beginning of the Exodus. It is the giving of life, right, in, in the way that Mark spins this. It is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, right, who, uh, who, who dies for the sins of others, right? Mark doesn't have a very developed way of representing that, but we, we see he is thinking with that in mind because that's what Jesus says when he says the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom Mary. That's what Jesus means when he says uh, this cup is my blood of the new covenant poured out for many. That's Isaiah 53 speaking there. So this is the, 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 the simplest way, I could, the bluntest way I can put it. Mark tells the Exodus in reverse because this is going to be a victory, but it's going to be a victory that is only achieved through apparent defeat. That's the simplest way I can put it. We call it a mystery. We call it the Paschal mystery. Now, I've already said a number of times that one of the ways that you could understand how that message would have been felt by Mark's audience, who lived through the worst defeat in Jewish history, is it gives them says, no, that in your defeat, in this defeat, whether you participated in the war or not, you know, we suffer the effects of this, this devastation of God's kingdom. In this devastation, this apparent defeat, God is showing his ultimate victory. doesn't look like that to everyone, but there is victory beneath the surface. Part of the victory is that Jesus already destroyed the temple. The Romans are just the mopping up operation. When the Romans claim Rome's gods are behind this, don't believe them. Jesus condemned the temple to destruction as a prophet would, right? Uh, that, that temple has been destroyed because of the wickedness of its leaders. Uh, and if you, want, if you needed proof of the wickedness of its leaders, not only did they kill Jesus, but their descendants started the war with Rome, which destroyed the temple, right? We talked about that last time. So Mark is speaking pastorally to a to a a broken people. He's saying that Jesus' sufferings are your sufferings, and they do not end in suffering. They end in victory. But you cannot reach that victory through fighting. You can't reach it through violence. You can only reach it by absorbing the violence of others, by neutralizing that violence, as Jesus did. Now, we, have a, we don't have a lot of development of this idea in Mark's gospel, but it's the center of the Paschal mystery. Uh, it's developed especially in John's gospel, it's developed in the Sermon on the Mount with the teaching of non-retaliation, non-violence. But again, if the problem, if the problem, the ultimate problem writ large in the world is empire, which is the exercise of violence on a mass scale, which ultimately goes back to the definition of sin in the murder of Abel by Cain, what is the kingdom of God? It is the reversal of that, it is the absorption of it, it's the neutralization of it, it's the termination of that pattern of history. That's where the victory lies. So that's a big side note. <laughs> Let's get back to the story. It was the Passover, or it was getting to be Passover. And we have a couple of scenes. First of all, Jesus, uh, his, uh, he is anointed. Now, Mark actually doesn't use the verb anoint, but he has oil poured over his head. That's the way you signify the anointing, the appointing of the king. Right? That's what Messiah means, the anointed one. When is Jesus anointed? Well, maybe his baptism was sort of like an anointing, but the only place where oil gets poured on his head is when he's hanging out at Bethany. Right, And this woman, nameless woman in this story, comes in and pours oil on his head. And he says, she has anointed my body for burial. 
So this is an anointing of a monarch whose power will be defined by powerlessness initially and will lead ultimately to empowerment, to resurrection. Right? Everywhere where the good news is proclaimed, uh, what she has done will be told in – or the good news it will be told in memory of her. So you have this nameless character who knows what's going on. Right? She is an ideal disciple. Right? Then we have the betrayal, right? Judas is ready to betray Jesus. Mark is uninterested in his motives. He's just bad, right? He betrays Jesus to the temple leaders. And then Jesus prepares for the Passover meal. And he prepares for the Passover meal in the same way that he prepared for his entrance. He calls up uh, the local guy. Or actually, he says, you know, you will go into the city. You'll see a guy and he will provide the place for us. Just like he says, go into this town and you'll see a donkey there. Tell them it's for me. You know, he's clearly in control. He's controlling the situation. He's shaping the circumstances so that he defines the meaning of what's going to happen. They have the Passover meal. They discuss the betrayal of Jesus and everyone says, We're not, it's not us. Uh, but then Jesus uh, takes the bread. He breaks it. He distributes it as he did in the wilderness, but now with the meaning, this is my body, um, which is given for you. Body, by the way, here, the word in Greek is soma, which is where we get the word somatic, right? Psychosomatic, things like that. Soma. It is not corpse. When Jesus is dead hanging on the cross, that will be a corpse. They bury his corpse, not his body. Body is a source of life, right? It's not a dead body. It's a living body. So somehow his body will be a source of life for all. And the blood of the covenant. What does the blood of the covenant mean? Well, it's connected with the story of the Exodus. On the mountain of Mount Sinai, Moses uh, seals the Sinai covenant by sacrificing animals and sprinkling their blood uh, as, as a way of sealing God's promise uh, to be in covenant with his people. But even in other parts of the Bible, there's reference to the blood of the covenant. And it basically means God's assurance that God will save his people, that God will protect them, that God will deliver them, even through hardship. So that's about as far as, as Mark gets in exploring that aspect of the, of the Eucharist. There's, there's very little about this in Mark, mainly because he's a, an evangelist of few words. But we see the basic pattern here. Importantly, Jesus says, I will never drink from this cup again until I drink it anew in the kingdom. That is to say, until the kingdom has come in power, sometime this generation, when the Son of Man comes on the clouds of heaven, I will not drink this again. So until I drink this cup, you'll know that the kingdom is not yet here. Then he says, let's go. What? Let's go? It's the Passover night. You don't go outside on the Passover night. You stay inside the house. Why do you stay inside the house? Because out there in the darkness is the destroyer, right? Go back to the original Exodus story. God sends a destroyer, a destructive force to elimin eliminate the Egyptians, or at least their firstborn, uh, as his, his climactic act of subjugating the enemy king. The, land, the blood of the Paschal Lamb is what protects Israel marks Israel as distinct from the Egyptians, marks them as to be saved and rescued from the fate of the evil empire. You stay inside your house on Passover night. No, says Jesus, we go forth. We go forth. We go forth to fight, essentially. You go, you go forth to confront the destroyer. 
Uh, so he goes out to this garden, as we all know, and in the garden, he prays. He prays, of course, that if, it, if this hour could pass. So here we hear the hour again that we heard back in 13. When will the hour be? No one knows. If this hour can pass, let it pass, but not my will, but your will be done. And he can't get the inner circle who heard all that in the last chapter to sit with him and pray with him and be with him because they are asleep. What did he tell them not to do? (laughs) Not to sleep. Stay awake. You don't know when the hour is coming, so stay awake. And this happens three times. At the end, he says, wake up. The hour is here. The Son of Man is betrayed, is handed over into the hands of sinners. Behold, my betrayer comes, right? So we have the scene in the garden. Um, And, of course, as he predicted at the Passover meal, the disciples, the twelve, split. They stumble. Just like those on the rocky ground in the parable stumble when the persecution arises. Having left him, Alone in the garden, we are then told rather suddenly by Mark, uh, but there was a certain young man who was with him in the garden. And uh, the language that Mark used to describe this strange young man who has no name like the strange woman who anointed his head uh, is that he was wearing, he was naked, which is kind of strange to be naked outside on Passover night, but he's wearing a Sindona is the word in Greek, which which it means a sheet, basically. Um, and the word sindona is also used to describe the burial shroud that will be uh, that will be used to uh, to um, wrap Jesus's corpse up after the crucifixion. Only two places in the gospel that word is used: what the young man's wearing and what Jesus will be wearing when he's dead. This is a paradoxical young man uh, because. Mark just told us that everybody left, and yet someone's still here. Uh, His disciples who wanted to be with him, uh, in fact, this verb to be with him is a verb that's only used elsewhere in the Gospels, uh, in the Gospel of the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. Now it's used of this nameless kid, basically. He's naked, but he's clothed. He's there, but he's not. He runs, right? He runs. Into the night, as the soldiers try to grab him, they only grab his shroud, his sheet. And so he runs off into the night naked. Um, We'll come back to him in a moment. Well, next next week we'll come back to him when when he reappears. I think I mentioned uh, last time or a couple times ago when we were talking about the journey that, uh, that he appears, the young man appears exactly when the passion begins, right? The passion begins when Jesus is handed over, which is what happens right now. The hour has now become the hour of Jesus' handing over. And this is when this young man appears and disappears. He will reappear after the passion is over, at the beginning and the ending. We'll we'll save the the issue of what he means to the story when we read the ending of Mark. Okay, but we're now at the point where Jesus is captured, and uh, he is led off to an arraignment, a hearing before the temple leaders who are trying to kill him. And uh, we're told that they try to bring false charges against him, one of which is the claim that he said that he would destroy the temple and in three days uh, build one not made with hands. Well, that's something that we might be familiar with, with from John's gospel, because in John's gospel, Jesus actually says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild another one in three days. 
Mark treats this as a false accusation, something that Jesus didn't say but was said of him. Now, Mark, as we already know from telling an Exodus in reverse, everything in Mark is ironic at this point. Everything that's false also has some deeper truth to it. Uh, and as we'll see when we get into the passion narrative itself, there will be a great deal of interest in the relationship between the destruction of Jesus' body and the fate of the temple. So, is Jesus destroying that? Well, we know that he predicted the destruction of the temple, but is he destroying the temple or not? That's sort of an ambiguity Mark leaves there. But what gets him sort of captured, uh, pinned down by the adversaries? Uh, the high priest asks him, are you the son of the blessed? Which is a way of saying, are you the son of God or are you the Messiah? These are all ways of saying the same thing. Jesus says, I am. This is a momentous moment because it's the first time that Jesus has not silenced people. Right? He says, shut up, don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone. Um, but now he is asked and he says, I am. But he immediately switches this around and says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power. Reference back to chapter 13, right? At the end, at the end of days, the end of empire, the Son of Man will come at the, on the clouds of heaven with his angels. Um, so notice, too, that even if we went further back in Mark, all the way back to the first Passion Prediction, when Peter said, you are the Messiah, which is essentially the Son of God, that's what the term Son of God means, the Messiah. Peter says, you're the Messiah. Jesus then says, don't tell anyone. And by the way, the Son of Man is going to be uh, rejected and killed. Notice that when, as soon as Peter brings up Messiah slash Son of God, Jesus brings in Son of Man. In the same way, as soon as the temple leader asks him, are you the son of God? He immediately turns around and says, I'm the son of man. Yes, but I'm the son of man. This is a way of saying, again, that what does Messiah mean? It doesn't mean the victorious military leader, right, who's going to crush the empire, right? He can only come to victory through this performance of the role of the suffering servant to give his life as a ransom for many. So that's why Jesus has to throw son of man in there whenever anyone says son of God or Messiah. Son of man in Mark qualifies the meaning of Messiah or son of God. Son of man, and, and even for son of man, as we know, it's not just Daniel's son of man because Daniel's son of man doesn't suffer. Daniel's son of man is there to be served by all peoples. Jesus even reverses that image. So when we think about titles of Jesus, we have to remember that the titles mean something very specific according to the way that they're used in the story. Son of God equals Messiah. Son of man equals the suffering servant. He can only be Messiah if he undertakes the role of the suffering servant. The two go together. The problem with everybody in the story, especially the 12, is that they can't accept that fact. They want the military Messiah, right? which is what the Bible predicts. Right? Messiah, son of David, is a military leader. Read Psalm 2. Right? His role is to crush the nations. That's what God commands him to do. Well, obviously, that narrative, that understanding of Messiah won't cut it either in the immediate aftermath of Jesus' death or especially in the aftermath of the Jewish war when, the, when everything seems to be in disarray. This does not look like God's power. 
Mark's answer is that's because God's power operates through apparent powerlessness. It tricks the way of doing things, the way that empires do things, the way empires think of power. That's not the way God's power operates. There will indeed be victory, but it can only be achieved by giving it up. Right? Uh, and so we have uh, the charge of blasphemy. Now in John's gospel, Jesus is also charged with blasphemy for calling himself God's son. There, however, we have to remember that in John's gospel, John's understanding of son of God means the Father and I are one. It means Jesus claiming unity with God the Father. That indeed would be blasphemous in most, uh, within most of the spectrum of Jewish thought. But in Mark's context, Son of God, Messiah, doesn't. we don't have any indication that that has any theologically radical meaning for any character in the story, even for Jesus. Um, what makes it radical is his combination of Son of God language with Son of Man as the suffering servant. But so the question is, why do they call this blasphemy? They don't call it blasphemy because he's saying, I am God. They, they call it blasphemy because they think he's lying. Right? He's blasphemy because he's not the Son of God. Right? The Son of God wouldn't do what he did in the temple. The Son of God uh, wouldn't behave the way he's behaving. So this is all part of the misunderstanding theme here. And so he is then handed over, the last handing over that takes place. First, it's Judas handing him over to the soldiers, the soldiers handing him over to the, the leaders, the leaders handing him over to Pilate, to the Roman governor. And here, finally, Rome enters the narrative as the empire, the Gentile rulers, those who rule the Gentiles, right? We heard about them in chapter 10, verse 45, when Jesus says, that is the antithesis of this. That is not the way it is like among you. That is not what the kingdom of God looks like. Look at me if you want to see what the kingdom of God looks like. He is now going to come head to head in that antithetical conflict between God's kingdom and the kingdom of the Gentiles next time. And that's where we will see the, the meaning of the passion uh, with all of its universal significance, but made very concrete in terms of Mark's own situation uh, in a world where Rome seems to have won the day over against God's kingdom. We see, we'll see what happens when Jesus and Pilate go toe-to-toe. And I hope to show uh, next week that it will maybe give us a slightly different interpretation of it than we're used to. Uh, so I think that's a good place to stop. I thank you for being with me this long. <laughs> For more information about the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy, log on to walsh.edu. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For an audio archive of this program, go to livingbreadradio.com and click on the programming menu. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.